Welcome to episode 15 of the Denver Crux podcast. This is your host, Jared Hazel, and today I'm joined remotely by Ryan Tilly. Ryan is a climber, an AMGA rock and alpine guide, and an overall mountain badass. Ryan also hosts a YouTube channel under his name, Ryan Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y, where he conducts gear reviews and instructional mountaineering skills. As far as instructional capability, I don't think it gets any better, which is exactly why I am stoked to have him on here today. Ryan can be reached on his Instagram handle, which is rtilson underscore, R-T-I-L-L-S-O-N underscore. Hope everyone enjoys the episode. Welcome to the Denver Crux, a podcast dedicated to the Colorado climbing community and their passion for adventure and pushing the limits of the human spirit. Actually camping and like actually camping and climbing and hiking, would you say you've been doing since you were last at your base home? Oh, well, I got lucky with this one since it was six days. Uh, or like I had time off and then I worked for these six days and then I have time off now. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, it's not uncommon to have these like streaks where you can, some people call it stacking the work where you can like work like a five day course and then you go right into like a three day climb and then you have like another three day climb afterwards. And so you can get kind of an impressive streak going on. And, um, like earlier this year, my last week of June and my first week of July were both pretty large weeks. So I like had a seven day private with one dude who like we were out pretty much all seven days doing something. And uh, he wanted to do like West Ridge of Forbidden was one of them and Fisher Chimneys was another. And then the uh, he originally wanted to add in North Ridge of Baker and just do all three of them in the seven days. But when I told him about that roadwalk, <laughs> We, we sort of reconsidered and we're going for the north face of Mount Bunkner, which um, may be less known to people outside of Washington. And we didn't end up climbing it because thunderstorms kind of ruined our plans. So we went rock climbing for two days in the middle. But um, still, it was like seven full days. That's going to be so rough on the body. Yeah, it I can mean... be hard. And especially since I had one day off in the middle. And then I went right back out into seven more days of work. And I think that wasn't a seven day private. That was like, I think a three day trip and then a one day thing and then another three day trip afterwards. And so that was like probably my most busy streak this summer for sure. Just like 15 days with 14 days of work in there. And uh, it can be hard. Yeah, for sure. Like uh, there's a special sort of mode you get into. And when you get used to it, you know, you can kind of tap into it and all of a sudden it kind of feels cool to like feed off of yourself. But, uh, yeah, other times it can just be a big drag. (laughs) And there are times when I'm just not feeling it and I have to, I end up walking really slow because I'm just Mm -hmm. tired. You're a total beast for doing that though. That's impressive. I'll tell you what, I just, I just finished up like today I was, I was out climbing. We were only out for 
I don't know, it was probably like an eight hour day or something total. Nice. Hike in, climb, yeah. hike out. And I'll tell you what, I just had to, I just had to take like an ice bath, <laughs> stretch out a little bit. And I'm like, oh my God, I feel, I feel a little bit, a little bit lame right now, you know? No, but, no, it's, it's like, it's all just about conditioning and how much yeah. you've done of it, you know? So it's like, there's no reason why anyone can't do what I do, you know? It's just about, uh, I don't know, just sort of putting the time in and letting your body adjust to that. And also maybe being younger helps too. Like, that does help. That does help. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I feel my age every year. So there's some times where I've had like knee issues at the end of seasons. And, um, you know, my back was hurting a bit yesterday too. <laughs> All right, well, we'll get started into it. So just off the bat, uh, first of all, thank you for coming on. I was actually super excited to reach out to you because I'll get into a little bit later, but you've been a massive inspiration to myself and a lot of my my team and my other friends within the climbing community over here in Colorado. A lot of us reference you all the time. and. Um, Seriously? You know, uh, yeah, one of my uh, buddies, um, a what like like a month ago goes, "Hey man, you know you're you know you've been you've been crushing this podcast and everything. Uh, have you reached out to Ryan Tilly?" And I'm like, you know what? He's been. <laughs> it's like he's been such like almost like a like a um. I guess I don't want to be too dramatic, but like a uh, a climbing aficionado of mine, you know, kind of like a master of the craft. I'm like, you know what? I never even thought about it, you know? And so I finally did. I'm like, you know what? This is fantastic. Yeah, man. Um, and that's, you know, I'm not sure, you know, you're obviously a very humble, um, guy and maybe you don't realize the reach that you have, you know, you're in, you know, oh, I totally in- don't. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't um, really think that. Yeah. I was that over- super popular or anything. Yeah, you're over in in Washington, but, um, you know, we're over here in in Colorado, you know, Denver metro area and kind of surrounding areas and, um, yeah, within the climbing community and stuff, especially the outdoor world, the mountaineering aspect of things, um, you've put out incredible content. You really have. Um, And so super glad you came on today. I'm very excited to talk to you. Um, For those of you for the people listening that maybe haven't heard of you, can you give us a, just a quick intro about who you are and what you do? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so I'm a mountain guide. I live in Washington right now. Um, and I'm sort I, oh man, <laughs> I got to think about this all of a sudden. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I've just been uh, living in, I've been living in Washington my whole life. I learned to climb here and and do a bunch of other stuff here. And I've been working now uh, professionally in the outdoor world, technically since I was 14 or so. That's when I got my first job at the rock climbing gym I climbed at. And then that moved into, let's see now, I worked there all the way through like college. And um, when I graduated from college, that's when I sort of just moved right into mountain guiding. And it was like kind of a logical transition. 
I guess technically I did do some guiding before that, you know, I would like work on summer camps with that same climbing gym. And uh, even before that, when I was like maybe 13 or so or 12, my mentor at the time, his name was Morgan Miller. And he brought me out as kind of like unpaid assistance to the camp counselors uh, working the outdoor days for their summer camps at the climbing gym. The climbing gym, by the way, was Vertical World. Um, some people may know it. It's definitely like more popular in Washington. They have like three locations. Uh, mm -hmm. But what I did is I worked at the uh, oldest and crappiest one of all of them. And that's also where I learned to climb. The one and with the most character. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, we can say that most character. And so that was back in the time, you know, when we would have all the holds were like sort of the same color and we would just put tape, you know, next to the holds to mark the routes. And, you know, every time it rained, which it rains a lot in the Seattle area of Washington, right? The roof would have maybe 30 or 40 leaks and little drops of water would just drop down onto our mats and we'd just put pieces of tape. So that way people would know not to stand there <laughs> and like. Other walls uh, would leak also <laughs> with the rain. So you kind of get like a nice alpine experience inside with like with whenever it rained outside, which, of course, was like nine months out of the year. Yeah. So it was like it definitely had a bunch of character. And um, when I was 13 or, or maybe even 12 or something, it's hard to remember. I would go out and Morgan would be like. We would be at like a local crag, like Gritscone was the main one, or uh, Weeded Rock, if anyone's familiar with those. And uh, he'd just be like, you know, go build a top rope anchor over there. And I'd be like, okay, Morgan. And I'd like run up or run around the back, you know, and throw up a top rope anchor. And then, uh, yeah, I'd just sort of be there assisting him with all the summer camp kids. And um, so that involved, you know, 14 was – as old or young as they would hire at the gym. And that would be essentially just belay slave, you know, uh, summer or uh, birthday parties. And uh, I would work some youth programs and I did that until let's, you know, uh, well, until I was 22 or something. And uh, I, throughout the time between 14 and 22, I evolved from just being belay slave for like birthday parties into uh, working with the youth programs, teaching adult classes like, you know, lead classes, top rope classes, belaying classes, um, movement classes, stuff like that, the sport anchors class, and uh, move into working the front desk and, uh, you know, having other responsibilities like that, uh, helping to train the newer instructors and uh, other, you know, just sort of things like that. It was kind of limited, you might say, for anyone who wants to aspire to work outside of the gym, like I did. For anyone who was like happy being in the gym, it was like a perfect step, you know, and maybe if I stuck with it, I would be like the manager of it or something like that, you know, in 10 years or something. But uh, I kind of wanted to move past that and like bring people into the outdoors. And um at this time, like in college was when I got like my SPI. Um, so that was kind of like a, a step in that direction. And that was also kind of the time when, you know, you start bringing people out. So 
like uh, team kids or team coaches, you know, my friends, I would bring them out. And it could have been like, I want to climb this route and I need someone to blame me. Or um, I actually am bringing them out in order to like show them, you know, what the outside is like. Like, you know, you get the team kid that can climb 512 in the gym, but they can't climb a 58 crack. So mm-hmm. you want to bring them out and have them crack climb and try to jam and do whatever. And um, so it was like a really great venue to get people to climb with. And then also to get people to uh, have these adventures with. And uh, it was a really good start for just going out and getting scared in the mountains and learning how to climb outside and, you know, and to just deal with all of that. It was a really good baseline to have that. And then, Did you have a big, was there a big polarity with your friends and kind of the people who you would bring out with, you were kind of saying the gym climbers versus you bringing these people out to the outside world? Were they kind of amazed with like, oh my God, this is outdoor climbing. I'm never going back. <laughs> um, like, hmm. <laughs> well, you get the, the spectrum of people for sure. And I think if you brought them to a place where it was just like climbing in the gym, they would dig it a little bit more. But sometimes, you know, it was like, well, hey, you should try climbing here or you should cl- try climbing there. Uh, a big example is Darrington in Washington. It's just a town, but next to it are all of these large granite features that are like domes of some sort. And it's essentially slab climbing and not just like slab climbing. It's like real slab climbing, like your feet are smeared on the wall. Your hands are just pasted against it. And you're looking at the next bolt that's like 14 feet up and you're like, I just don't know how I'm going to get there. But then next thing you know, you are there. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then you're like, you got this like run out on the slab and you're kind of like a little sketch. But once you clip that bolt, then you feel invincible. And then you get past the bolt like a foot and then you're like, I'm sketched again. And so if I brought people from the gym to that world, sometimes they could be like blown away, you know, especially if, um, if they were on top rope, then they felt a bit more secure, you know? Um, but like, that was kind of the cool part for me was when I would bring people to something like Darrington, I went through a huge phase where I loved climbing, like run out slab, whatever. And, um, I would bring people out there and kind of blow their minds at like what, what's possible on in the outside world. Um, and then, you know, same thing with like going to index or something with like these vertical cracks, um, which is something that usually people from the gym, they kind of get their mind around a bit more, mm-hmm. but it like, yeah, you get all sorts of spectrums, like, especially with that whole slab deal, I would get people that are kind of like, I'm not climbing here again. Like they're just like <laughs> not into the whole friction climbing. Um, and that's like the big thing is like slab can be very polarizing. It seems to some folks, they just if they're not used to the insecure feeling, you know, they're just out of it and they don't want to deal with it. Um, or they stick with it and get used to it. So it's kind of one or the other. And that's the same that you get with any guiding or bringing anyone out is just that, you know, picking the right objective for them. If you want to blow their mind or if you want to play it like a bit closer and, and just curate this nice experience for them. 
So at that time, you were in your early 20s, you're bringing out some friends. You weren't self-guiding with your own company yet, correct? Yeah, it wasn't really guiding, you know, it was like, just bringing out friends. Occasionally, I would do like kind of what they call pirate guiding, Mm -hmm. which is like, sometimes I get like, a few folks from the gym that were willing to pay me to teach them how to multi-pitch or uh, just go out and climb with them or sport anchors or something, you know, kind of like these, you could say like these um, smaller days and it would fully be pirate guiding, like no insurance, uh, no permits. And uh, they're literally just like throwing me like 50 bucks to do this because they want to learn how to do it. And they, at the time, you know, I was kind of like, I want to get into guiding. And um, I was like, that was the plan, but I didn't really have an avenue to do it. And I didn't really, I didn't like work with any companies yet other than that gym, which they were very specific. It's a rock climbing gym. They're not a guide service. So they don't really, none of the people that were in charge of the gym were really interested in going outside. Like it was hard for us even to do summer camps outside because the leadership of the gym pushed back on it so much. And for us in the gym, that was pretty much all the experience we had available to us. So it was, uh, you know, for someone who wants to get outside and bring people outside, it was a pretty limiting environment and it's through no fault of their own, but like, that's just the way they want to build their company. You know, I see other gyms that I go climbing at and like other states and other areas, and they're a bit more open to it. Like if uh, they have a member, a staff member that like has their SPI and wants to bring people out, the gym is a bit more okay with like marketing that and setting them up with people. And then they can work under the gym's insurance. And uh, depending on whatever land they have around them, they can get permits. You know, in a lot of places, it's not hard to get a permit. Um, and then other places like uh, BLM land, most of the time you really don't need permits. So it can work out for people that want to build a program in their gym. But my gym was not into that at all. And they're still not into it to this day. It's just the way how they want to run their company. And there's nothing wrong with that. So even during this early kind of pirate guiding phase, it sounds like would you say that was a good opportunity to kind of build your style of how you were going to guide later on your style, your communication, where you're bringing newcomers and everything Did it kind of set a framework for how you deal with your clients today? Yeah, for sure. And I feel like anyone would, any guide would say the same thing the first couple of times they bring them out, however way they bring people out in the first place, you know, uh, they'll, that first, like, really it's kind of like the first year is them finding their own voice and their own way to communicate what they want to their folks. And like for me and in that world, it was kind of actually like the first year I did mountaineering guiding, which would have been when I was 22, right? Yeah. About 22. And that was mostly spending time on Baker and um, what a lot of folks around here call the Baker horn, because you just like run people up and down, either the Coleman Deming or the Easton, uh, both non-technical mountaineering routes and clients, you know, you need 
very little upfront skills in order to accomplish those routes. Really, you just need... Oh, yeah? Real quick, just for clarification, I've actually never heard that term, uh, not a non-technical mountaineering route. What Mm -hmm. is... What does that mean? Is that is that still in class five climbing or are we in class yeah. four or what are we talking about? Yeah. And so maybe those are a bit more of a colloquial sort of term. Uh, but you can, uh, the way how I segmented out is like non-technical climbing uh, is more of the mountaineering realm when you kind of just walk to the top. Okay. And you have something like glacier travel and you have to wear crampons on snow or ice maybe a running belay or an actual belay here or there, but the actual objective of the climb or the actual objective of the, the route that you're doing doesn't really involve any fifth class climbing or like WI three ice climbing or above even WI two. So like an example of that is something like uh, the Coleman Deming on Rainier where essentially people are just using their two feet and hiking to the top, but you still have glaciers and you have to wear a harness and the helmet and all this stuff. And you have these objective hazards like seracs and rocks that are falling down and stuff like that. Got it. Whereas like a technical route would be something like uh, the North Ridge of Mount Baker. When you have, you know, at the top, most of the time there's AI three ice climbing and you have to stop and build an actual belay. You know, you need more burly ropes to actually handle fifth class climbing. Or like, um, you could also say the, any route up Forbidden Peak too, which is a very popular mountain. Actually, one more popular is Mount Shuxon. And so that has a summit pyramid. No matter what route you do, there's a summit pyramid at the top, which involves either uh, upper fourth class climbing or even low fifth class climbing, depending on what side you decide to climb up. And that's like full on technical terrain. So that's kind of like how I divide the two up is kind of like walking versus when you actually have to climb up. Got it. No, yeah. no, that's awesome. And, and just so, just so you know, I have zero Alpine experience. I haven't, I haven't uh, delved into the, I, the Alpine world yet. And I know that's one of your, one of your many areas of expertise. So I'm super excited to kind of, you know, learn a bit more about that. I went to a, um, just a couple of weeks ago, actually, I went to an SPI preparation class Oh, nice. and, um, there was a, it happened to be over here in Denver. We just had this weird, like rain spell. It was just <laughs> raining and raining and raining every day. And it's like, this never happens. Great for my grass though. Yeah. You know, but I'm like, man, you know, this is really screwing up my climbing. So we get out there and, you know, it's just downpouring in Boulder Canyon. And one of the instructors had a climb set up and, you know, it was, it was a very, very simple climb. Um, and they're like, all right, so this is going to be a, although this is an FBI class, this is going to be an intro into Alpine climbing just because it's raining. <laughs> yeah. and I'm like, yes, it's finally happening. You know, we scramble up a little five, four, whatever. And, and we're well, like, that, yep. that is very Alpine right there. Actually, is like just scrambling up something when it's in bad shape yep. or <laughs> bad conditions. <laughs> so, so after that, uh, what created the transition for your decision to go, all right, I'm ready to do my own company. I'm ready to officially guide. Yeah, that, um, 
it all started with just working with four other people. And, um, I, uh, my first like real service I kind of worked for was a company called me adventures. That's also based out of Seattle. And it was kind of like a bit more of like kind of cowboy sort of deal where they were like, Oh, well, yeah, just come work for us. And I'm like, well, you know, I don't have too much Alpine experience at the time, but they're like, typically like beginner terrain for guiding in Washington is kind of like that Alpine volcano terrain. And so um, there's nothing really you can do, but sort of just hop in with both feet and start going up a few of these climbs. You know, it really does help to get out. I had been mountaineering like maybe four or five times before that. And in that time I climbed like some more obscured peaks, like a snowfield peak in Washington. I'd climbed the Fisher chimneys actually with that same snowfield peak crew because I was the best rock climber out of all of them. And so they brought me along for like the rock part on Shuxon, which is kind of funny. So like for anyone who's like a gym rat who wants to get into Alpine, generally you just find people that are a bit more of uh, Alpine climbers. And then if you're the best rock climber, they'll bring you along. So that way you lead the hard pitches. There you it's go. Like you both earn something out of that partnership. <laughs> that seems to be an easy way to do it. But the first time I climbed Baker was actually as what you could call an apprentice guide, like in a little bit of a semi leadership position, at least in the client's eyes. And, um, that was, yeah, the first time up Baker, you could say I had responsibilities rather than just going to do it with my friends. And, um, and like comparatively experience wise too, it really wasn't that much. It was just like, yeah, a few times out in the mountains, sleeping overnight and uh, getting alpine starts and sort of understanding how things go. And then from then on, it's like you learn more about taking care of yourself in that environment, as well as like working with other people mm -hmm. and uh, answering questions and um, guiding them through terrain. And so that's kind of like the first step into the real world of being a professional guide for me. And then I moved on to a company called Northwest Alpine Guides, which I still work with now. And um, that's still my main service and kind of solidified all that. But I would say it took me like at least about two years or two full seasons to kind of find my voice with protocols and um, decision making in that terrain, as well as just sort of managing people, you know, like mm -hmm. learning how fast or better yet, how slow to walk. That's a big thing. Uh, learning like small things like keeping your sharps out of your tent, you know, in the pile, uh, making water or melting snow, which is a pretty soul destroying task actually if you've ever melted snow for like a group of 10 it's like every every person who's done one year of guiding in the volcano land will understand the pain of melting snow and just you know the minute you get that pot melted you pour it in the drum and then or the drum like you know a little water bag and um that's always when someone walks up and asks you if there's water in there and you, you're kind of like no, no, there's no water yet. Cause you don't want to lose that. Right. It's like gold. Yep. 
but they eventually find out that you lied and they find the water in the bag and then they fill up their bottle and then you have to start from square one again. And then you just repeat that process like 11 times where you melt, you spent two hours melting snow, but you haven't had any water filled up in your dromedary bags until everyone goes to sleep. And then you can stay up for four hours and fill them all up finally. You got to so pay your like, dues, huh? Yeah. It's like that. that is one of the hardest jobs. It never ends. And uh, it's always best to just take turns with it. Or even better, it's just fine running water. And then your life gets a lot easier. But um, yeah, so I'd say like kind of all those like baseline skills and then running with the rope team, you know, dividing the rope up for your rope team and finding the specific length you want and uh, all that sort of stuff. It took me like maybe two years to really solidify what I prefer. And then by the time I came in year three, I was a lot more, uh, what, what would be a good word for it? I was a lot more compact and uh, focused in what I could do in order to just get the results I want the first time rather than taking a more circuitous route in order to like convey what I want out of my folks. And uh, I think that's something everyone has to go through. Uh, I, my sort of points, I mentorship is a really good thing to have me personally going through those phases. I would kind of move in and out. Sometimes I'd have like mentorship from a more experienced guide. Other times I'd be kind of on my own. And then other times I would be the mentor, which is even at that time, which is even harder to swallow. And so not only are you trying to pretend like, you know, something to yourself, but now other people are kind of like assuming you do too. So it's like, it could be a bit of a bumpy road. And maybe if, you know, if you go through like a larger service, they have like a more experienced lead guide out on every single one of these trips because they have a bigger pool to draw from. But my upbringing was kind of through all these smaller services. And because of that, you kind of got thrown into more uh, faster, you know, like managing those people is the big one. And just like any other big company versus smaller company, would you say that you kind of gravitated that way because you have a little bit less volume from the company you're able to you're able to care for people a little bit more, a little bit longer. You have a little bit more time. Would you say that's kind of an advantage of a smaller guiding company? Yeah, that's an advantage of a smaller group in general. And so if the, the size of your group can depend on a number of things, uh, a lot of times it's going to be like what you sign up for, like a standard Baker climb is going to be a larger group than something like a more advanced climb. And that's done because the more standard climbs are a lot more accessible to people. Uh, advanced climbs cost more because we have to run them at that smaller ratio, but because we run them at a smaller ratio, you get more of that like kind of one-on-one sort of attention. And then the length of the time out there too, you know, and overnight we really like, there's no real like connection or room to learn in there. Whereas like an actual five day course or sometimes companies will do six or 11, 12 day courses. Uh, there's a lot of learning time in there. And so, um, 
I gravitated towards smaller companies. I'm actually still not sure why I did. Uh, I definitely could have moved on to a bigger company, but what I really liked about the smaller ones is that I was able to get into the line of, or the type of guiding that I wanted to do faster. And uh, maybe that was by necessity. Maybe that was by the people making those decisions. They knew me better um, because, you know, I was the only person they hired that year. So what I really wanted to get into was like working on technical terrain. And um, at this time, you know, I'm like more of a rock climber than anything. So I like rock climbing, but I'm living in Washington and working as an alpine guide. So the the technical work is kind of in the alpine realm, which is understandably a little bit more objectively hazardous than a single pitch realm. And so I essentially kind of had to prove myself to the people in charge that gave me these routes that I could actually do it. And in a bigger company, it's harder to single yourself out to get those objectives without working there for a longer period of time. So maybe after like four years or something, then you're finally going to get those more advanced things. Whereas I kind of moved into that like year two. And in some, like I did kind of guide a more advanced route on my first year two, even though I probably shouldn't have, but I did. <laughs> and so, and Trial by fire. yeah, the company had a smaller pool of people to choose from. And, um, you know, I had a bit more training than an average guide coming into the business, a bit more experience. So it kind of singled me out and I was able to get into that line. And then I moved on to the point where now I'm like essentially only doing that, but I've, I would consider myself a lot more prepared for those objectives now than I was back when I started. You kind of hinted at it a little bit earlier when it comes to like teaching yourself how to walk a little bit slower for different (laughs) clients and everything. Is that a pretty common challenge is people coming in physically unprepared when they're coming into this new territory? Um, So the physical preparation, it's not impossible for even someone straight off their couch to climb one of these mountains and get through the experience. Now it would suck a lot more for them and they would probably have more fun if they did a little bit more prep, but, um, pacing is really the great equal equalizer for folks that would be, that can't compensate with general fitness. And so if you have someone who runs every day, and, you know, they can run a 10K and all this and that, then they really don't have to do any training probably to, like, get up one of these things, Uh, especially if you gave them, like, a day pack. And then if we did more of that, like, okay, just climb, we'll just climb it in a day, then they would probably not have an issue. But then you add in the backpack, the heavy load with the tent and stoves and whatever, that can be a big destroyer. And so you give someone who's not used to pacing and just going for it when they're, they only have their body. And then you add like a third of their body weight on top. If they're going to try to go that same speed, they're going to blow out faster. And so that's where pacing comes in, where if you walk slower, then your body will adjust more and then you'll have greater energy the next day when we have the lighter packs going to the summit. 
And that can be the same for someone who's more out of shape and they still like the backpacks kind of stay the same weight. So they still have that heavy pack on them. But if they're trying to catch up to these people that want to go faster, they're going to blow out even faster than those folks that want to go faster. And then you're going to have like turmoil in your group. So if I'm in front and I'm walking slow with my backpack, then that keeps everyone going at the same rate where the people that want to go fast are like, it doesn't really matter if they go slower, but then those slower folks have a pace that's achievable for them. And then it helps you last throughout the entire climb too. Like the, the summit of the mountain is not going to run away from you. Right. <laughs> like some people seem like they always are running after this thing. Like it's going to disappear in the next 20 hours or something. And so what I've just sort of moved to is just walking at the same slow pace, which I may change up depending on the group. Sometimes I may walk a bit faster if it's just me and one other dude that can walk super fast, or I may walk slower depending on whatever. And um, that first day, all we're trying to do is get to camp. Once we get to camp, we can rest. And then if you like work really hard and walk really fast on that first day and you're really tired at camp, maybe you're not going to recover enough for the next day. And so if you're slowly running yourself out day by day, it could just like destroy your whole trip. Now, maybe on something like a Baker climb or a volcano climb in general, that doesn't really matter because you're just trying to blitz to the top and then you can just like gravity take you down. But if you're doing something like a more complex traverse in the Cascades, like the Pickets or something, that's where pacing really makes a difference. And uh, I've done a number of those like longer traverses and longer trips where that is how you make it through the whole trip. And so um, I even heard like this one phrase of like, it's just like jelly beans in a jar and you can just keep, you keep on taking out the jelly beans, but you don't really add any in. And mm -hmm. so you got to figure out if you're going to dump half the jar the first day, you know, versus slowly taking some out. It's about just efficiency and energy management. That's really, um, really the big deal with pacing. And that's, it's kind of hard for me to learn. And I think it's kind of hard for newer guides to learn too, because it's so common to just like, you see it all the time, like out of camp, fresh morning, 2 a.m. And they just start trucking ahead. And uh, it's like all of a sudden, all the clients are just like huffing and puffing more than they have to. And, you know, they get discouraged because they're like, are we going to like run our way up here? Whereas if you start that slow, even slower pace, like it takes like an hour for your body to warm up to full mm -hmm. walking speed, especially at like 2 a.m. So I personally will go a slower pace for like the first hour. And then maybe I'll ramp up into a normal one, but you won't see me walking that fast uphill. That's for sure. Now, I know there's a lot of people, at least in the community who I speak to just through conversations and everything that have a little bit of hesitation and are a little bit intimidated when it comes to um, signing up with a guiding service kind of for that reason. Is there concern that they're not going to be in enough shape? Is it common for a company or your company personally to send out some sort of preparation guidelines and everything, depending on how far in advance they sign up? 
Yeah, so like every company will send out some sort of pamphlet or brochure or whatever that's talking about information for your route or your course. And they'll have stuff like a gear list on there and uh, maybe an example itinerary type thing. Uh, other times, uh, it depends on the company as far as like exercise preparation, fitness related things. Um, it, I think for some trips, there'll be a bit more information on that versus others. And that would be like maybe more of a higher end type trip, something like uh, Aconcagua or like a Denali or, you know, like some of these big mountains. That oh, so like massive trips. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So um, they'll maybe have a bit more of a training regiment recommended. And then that's also where people signing up for those trips will probably like a lot of them hire someone like a personal trainer to help prepare them for something like that. But for some of the one or two day trips, is it just kind of come as you are and you as the guide will adapt to them so they don't have to worry about that side of the fitness being a major hindrance? Well, that, that could very well possibly happen. If you sign up for something like a private trip, then like the guide will definitely adapt to whatever you are. The issue with that is when you come in with a group trip and that's when... Um, you know, like if you're the slowest person in the group, you could be slowing down the whole group, that sort of thing. And that's what a lot of people worry about mentally wise. The mentality of signing up for these things is like, how am I going to compare to the other people? Because it's kind of like that relation of you versus the other people is the more of a decision factor than you versus the guide. And so as long as the group stays together, you have a, a range of speed that you're okay to go. And uh, there are other factors involved with like, if you are too slow going up these mountains, generally like guides will turn you around um, for various reasons. And they, it's kind of hard to list all of them right now, uh, but you don't have to be super fast. It's maybe speed isn't the right word or the right thing to focus on versus like, more of efficiency going up and um, energy resources type thing. Like, I don't really have a good word for it, I guess, but um, people do tend to focus on speed a whole lot. And maybe more of a slow and steady is preferred over short bursts of energy and then resting and taking up more time. It's kind yeah. of just better to just kind of, keep that nice slow push yeah. forward. The slow plod forward is great, but I, I hesitate saying this because like some of other services will put a big emphasis on speed. And so it kind of depends on your service a little bit more and maybe your objective. Um, so it's, it is a little bit of a tough thing to answer. I can say for my service in particular, we don't really stress speed too much. Uh, we do kind of stress overall time throughout the day. Like we don't want to be pulling these 16 hour summit days and no one really wants to do that. And so, you know, if we like, you can set a turnaround time that's achievable and that's sort of what we would expect. And, um, and maybe that's mentioned in the itinerary that's kind of front loaded, 
but we don't expect everyone to be like a trail runner or star athlete. And then you can definitely get some other services that are a bit more watching their watch the whole time. And if you don't make it to this point in X amount of minutes or hours or something, then you're kind of out, which uh, I personally, I don't agree with that too much. And that is the nice part about working with smaller groups of people like me when I work with one or two folks is you can tailor that trip a bit more to them. And if you have to take a bit more time here or there or less time or shave this or like change some stuff around to make things work better, you can. And uh, that's ultimately kind of like the uh, mostly the silver bullet there is if you are worried about your speed and your fitness for whatever you want to do, it may be worth going with a private trip even though that could cost more money or, or it definitely will cost more money, but it may be the best way for you to be happy the whole time and actually get to the top of your objective. Got it. I kind of want to pivot now from the physical side to the psychological challenges that in your experience that you faced with new clients and everything, what is some of the, what are some of the biggest challenges and pitfalls that you see um, as a guide? And I guess one of the, it's a very, it's an area of interest of mine because I'm, I'm not a guide. I don't do any type of guiding. I just bring, I just bring friends out, you mm -hmm. know, and uh, it's fascinating to see as I'm kind of communicating with them, they'll, they'll be talking to me as I'm playing or whatever. And they'll be kind of, articulating what's going on in their mind. And it's very interesting seeing some people having a panic on the route, some people having a bailout and everything. And um, I had a buddy who very recently was like, you know what? I think I've just got to stop leading. I'm scared of falling or all that. I think I've just got to top rope this whole season and maybe pick it back up next season. Do you see any commonalities with the people that are coming out on these climbing expeditions? Um, you can definitely get folks that are, they're getting tweaked out on the terrain for sure. And you see it in a variety of different situations. Like sometimes you can get someone who's a really good rock climber. They climb, you know, three times a week in the gym but you put them on steep snow and all of a sudden, you know, it's like they're, they're a beginner climber again. And that's just because, you know, they haven't really spent time on snow. You know, snow is obviously not as solid as rock. <laughs> so like just being on snow and being comfortable with that, like not having your foot or not being worried that your foot's going to blow out or trusting the, the protection that we use in snow or snow pickets. And it's literally just a, like a large overgrown tent stake that you pound into the snow and then you just like clip people to them and they're like, I don't know about that. And you're like, well, I do. So, <laughs> and it's, yeah, it can be a really interesting thing, the mental game. And I've worked with a lot of folks on rock climbing and just straight up rock climbing terrain where it's kind of like they're working on uh, maybe yeah, they're working on their outdoor skills. They're a little bit nervous. They're getting past it still on these single pitch things. 
and I bring up, I'm like, Hey, maybe we should try out a two pitch climb or a three pitch climb, you know? And, um, they're kind of like, well, I don't know if like, if I'm a little scared on the single pitch, won't I be more scared on this multi-pitch, you know, just, it sounds more scary, but if you handle it the right way and, uh, you help them through whatever emotions they're feeling, it can be really rewarding for them. So and, you've uh, really got to kind of play, um, I'm not sure if you see it this way, but it sounds like you really got to play a little bit part psychologist, part uh, supportive friend out there to these clients to kind of yeah get them out there to be able to experience the full adventure that you're trying to facilitate for them. Yeah. And uh, it's like, it's a really interesting thing because different people will react different ways. And you can work with them in different ways. Like a common thing that I tend to do is distract folks more than, uh, than like other people would try to like maybe analyze them in the moment and just get to the heart of the issue. Whereas like when I help them through with whatever and they're clipped to the anchor and then I just talk to them about mundane things and, uh, I've found some more success like that, but it obviously won't work with everyone. Mm. So even though it, it seems to work a fair amount for me, there are times where you just have to try something different. And there are times where you get it wrong too. Mm -hmm. You can, you pick a right route, like don't take them up a route where you have to go up and over, you know, like a route that you can just bail off of right away is perfect. Because if it's like, you know, they're really not liking this and um, maybe we'll just go back to the ground, then we'll just repel back to the ground. And so you can slowly work them up to that. But sometimes people feel a lot of comfort if you're above them and if they climb to you. So if uh, they know that the route is possible, you've already made it there. Now you're the second one coming up. Yeah. And it's easy for them to focus on you also. Like you're, you are up there and uh, it's so easy just to say, you know, keep climbing to me. And like, you can actually, if you're above them, you can uh, give them a lot uh, more help than you could if you were below them. So you can like help boost them up a section. You can pull the rope super tight. Like it feels way tighter because there's just less rope between you and them. And so sometimes I'll even do a single pitch route in that exact same way where I'm at the top and they climb up to me and then maybe I just lower them right down. Or I, I do that a lot also for prepping to do a multi-pitch and like they are learning how to do it or yeah, before we go on a real multi-pitch, I just take a single pitch and I climb up, I belay them up. We propel down. It's like basically a multi-pitch. That's very interesting. So you're belaying from above on a single pitch. Yeah. It's very, nice. very interesting training tool. See, that's that's just such a fantastic, um, um, how should I say, kind of not doctrine or by the book instructor technique that I think is great. Yeah, you know and that book. Very you interesting. Through your like SPI course too, and like working on that track, it's actually a very useful tool as a single pitch instructor because of those exact reasons, you know, like giving them a boost and everything. And it's totally within your realm of practice to do that. Certain places like 
there's some routes in Joshua Tree where it's like part of the game is you do that single pitch in kind of multi-pitch style and then walk off the other side or like do whatever. It's like that's what separates, you know, a professional from someone who's just taking their buddies out. Like I, I saw this one time, this was a long time ago where it was like a dude and his three friends. I call them the dude bros. Cause that's totally what they were. I think they like, the crushed like a, they must've crushed like a case of beer while they were out there. But there was one guy who really knew what he was. Oh, well, there was one guy who knew like the ropes and then his three friends, he was like sort of showing them everything. And then in an interesting decision, he set up the top rope for the climb. He set up the guys down below for belay. You know, one guy was top rope belaying. The other guy was climbing. Uh, and then he got himself to the top and he was clipped to the anchor with a personal anchor system. And he was just like shouting at them from the top of the crag. And the guys are down there at the bottom, like belaying for like the first time, maybe lowering for the first time. And he was in, you could say a position of power because he was above them. But there was no way he was actually connected to the system or could influence anything. So he put himself in the worst spot possible. <laughs> if anything happened, he was just trapped where he was. And like I was just sort of watching the whole thing. Like there's no logic in any of these decisions right here. Like if you're going to put yourself on top, make you should be the belayer. But um, so that's kind of like my example of like, Dudes at the crag, you know, that maybe do some things right, but they don't really like, they're not set up for success and they're not setting up their friends for success. Whereas if you put like a guide in that scenario, like a professional, there's a lot of things that they can do from that vantage point that could really like help anyone to the top of that climb. And that's like, that's a big difference right there between a professional and just some, some guy like taking his friends out. I have a lot of those examples too. Like I've seen a lot. I mean, I think that's so interesting about the kind of the instructor community. And I work in the, I work in the instructor community as well, but in the Mm -hmm. first responder aspect of things, but all these kind of instructor techniques and everything, it's kind of interesting thinking about that no matter who you are, Right, whether you're one of those, those would you call them the dude bros? Yeah, the dude bros. <laughs> <laughs> whether you're, you know, this dude bro or you're a professional, both people can have all the tools. Like you can go to Home Depot and buy whatever tools you want mm-hmm. and everything. But the difference is, how are you going to use those tools? And the professional, in your case, the guide, the guides are the professionals are the ones that are able to actually utilize the tools, utilize the psychology that comes with it and put it together kind of in the proper format to actually make that tool work to its best degree. You know, and that's, it's very cool. And like I mentioned earlier, uh, there's a reason why you're so popular in our climbing community over here in the Denver area is there's, there's various um, YouTubers out there um, instructors and professional people, they're all in the professional realm. And I mean, I can list, you know, a multitude of people and organizations, um, even, even, um, great organizations like outdoor research that has these AMGA 
instructors that are dispensing knowledge and videos and everything. And it's very bonafide information, which is great. But there's certain people out there like yourself that really stand out in the way that you actually put it out there. And you're someone who you're not like reading from a textbook. Hey, my name is Ryan Tilly. Today, I am going to show you how to such and such. Um, you know, you have a way of communicating these type of techniques and tactics that is very digestible, like very, very digestible. You're, you're kind of like one of, when I watch your videos, you're kind of like one of the, one of the dudes, yeah. like, you, you know, not the dudes that you were referring to before, but I'm talking about, you're like, oh, this is my friend who's just speaking from the heart, from off the top of his head with real good knowledge and he's filtered it in such an informal way and people really respond to that and people are able to absorb that so much better than that super super formalized version you know and so i just want to give you a little bit of framework as to why people why people like you in my community because you you just filter it and you make it digestible and people love that. They learn 10 times as fast. And I've heard people say, hey, I'm trying to learn how to do this. I've watched these other AMGA videos 10 times. And then I watched, and then I'll send them your video. And they're like, oh, I watched Ryan Tilly once. And boom, <laughs> it just made sense. But the information was the same, but he made it make sense. And you create these light bulb moments for people. So people appreciate that. And it's cool that you have that ability to communicate and connect with people just over a five minute video. Well, I definitely did not know that. <laughs> it's <laughs> that, awesome. That, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like people like they'll understand and accept information in a number of different ways. You know, some people are like really into that whole textbook sort of deal, like pros, cons, uh, way how you execute it, you know, maybe a small list of applications. And then other times, like, I, like you said, you know, other people may absorb it in a bit more of a more free flowing type format. And when I film these videos, I don't script anything. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's pretty easy to tell. By <laughs> but you them. flow, you flow in a very smooth manner. Yeah. And that's been like just over the years, you know, like instructing people since I was 14, I've sort of like been able to do the whole, like just step up there and then get it out and um, learning different teaching styles from different people has uh, definitely helped that one out too. And it's like, it's a never ending process, but it is pretty fun to sometimes I just pretend I'm in front of people when I do that. Like the whole camera thing still tweaks me out a bit. Like I usually get the first take wrong or I forget what I usually say or something like that. And it takes me like a take or two, but then I sort of like move into how I usually do it when I'm talking to people, but exactly. the camera can still be hard for me. That's for sure. It's weird. It's different. You know, yeah. when you're, just talking to yourself in a kind of a selfie camera mode, 
it's it's just different. You're not talking to somebody. The selfie you know? remote is a bit easier for me. If I'm alone and I have my camera, I bought a tripod. So okay, I th- I always thought that the thing that separated my videos from everyone else's videos was the production value, because I feel like everyone has a higher v- production value than me, and that's pretty much true. Like uh, I watch other people, I'm like, wow, how do they do that? You know, like, um, and. Uh, yeah, so it's kind of always been my thing, I guess, is like low production value. But um, it's almost as if that very aspect has worked greatly in your favor because it, it, I think it creates a little bit more of that connection, like someone's just kind of FaceTiming with you. It almost has that feel, you know, that this isn't like a... Yeah, I see what you mean. Big, big dollar production and everything going on. Um. I cut real quick. I want to circle back before I interrupted you. Uh, you were talking about some other bad habits. If you had to choose one, one or two big bad habits or things that you see when you're out there professionally guiding with your people. And then when you run into your more recreational climbers at the crag, what are some, some big mistakes that you're seeing? Cause I always like to kind of get after these, these kind of observations, because I think it's important to bring up and, you know, it's not like we're trying to bash on anyone or anything like that. Um, it just makes me curious what's going on in your eyes as a professional to the rest of us. I mean, I feel like I could give you more than one or two. <laughs> like there are a few things that come to mind that kind of activate my almonds when it comes to this. But uh, I think one thing is belay technique. That is for sure. Like, the biggest thing, and it doesn't matter if it's lead or top rope. Uh, most of actually a number of these sort of things in my mind could apply to both. Um, there, it's hard for me to like, you know, this is actually on my list of videos to make in the future. Cause like visually it's easier to show, but, um, the big one is kind of having slack between your break hand and the device. If that makes sense, like yeah, so so facing not like if we're holding a ATC or Grigory, making yeah. sure that the brake hand isn't right here pressing up against the device. Yeah, and so you can have your brake hand spaced from the device, you know, by however many inches is comfortable for you. But uh, if you imagine like when the climber says take, you take in the slack, and then when you're holding them on the the tight rope, wherever mm-hmm. your hand is. And it can be a little bit away from the device. It doesn't have to be right on top of it, but that rope is tight, right? Between your mm-hmm. brake hand and the device. And so when they when they go to climb and they unweight the rope, if you like pull in rope and then you don't slide your brake hand back up, there's a loop of slack that'll form between your hand and the device. And you may make a little loop. And you Mm -hmm. see this a lot more in lead climbing because it's, you know, you have to slide your hand down to feed out rope. And having that slack there between the device and your hand is at worst, uh, well, at best, it's just bad belay technique. At worst, it could cause you to drop your climber. And it just seems like a ticking time bomb, especially depending on what device the belayer is using. And in general, that that blade technique comes from using an assisted braking device like a Grigory 
and uh, people get really, you know, used to having that active cam there to help them hold the load and having that extra slack between your hand and the device, chances are it's just going to pinch the rope and you won't feel any repercussions. But I've seen whenever I see someone doing that with like an ATC or something, then I'm like nervous because it's so easy for if they were to fall, that rope has to slide through until it comes tight to your hand. And then from that point, it's so easy to have your hand get sucked into the device and then everyone goes like, ah, and then they just drop the climber. It's like a very large lack of control and it's very prevalent, I feel like. And I also feel like no one ever brings it up. <laughs> like I haven't seen too many folks mention that or anything. So that's the sort of thing that I would like to actually make a video about to illustrate that one. And, um, you know what, that's a, that's a great point that there are certain things out there such as that, that nobody brings up. And I deal with that in my community as well, where I instruct is it's all okay until it's not right. And so people get away with things and you get away with it and you get away with it. And so you don't bother bringing it up. You don't bother correcting it and everything. And the reason you don't do that is because nothing has happened yet, probably because you've gotten lucky dozens of times, hundreds of times, thousands of times, but it only takes one time to get unlucky. Oh yeah, for sure. And like, that's completely correct. Like I agree with every point in that statement there is like, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to know when you're going down that road. Um, it's confirmation bias mm. and uh, it's huge in like the avalanche world. For sure. You know, if like you have different types of biases, like I guess looping it, let's stay out of the avalanche world since this is a climbing podcast, but um, looping it back to climbing, it's, oh, I've never had a friend of mine fall on this pitch. Like this is a five, five. We're just warming up right here. And uh, that's a certain type of confirmation bias. And then it also moves into, uh, well, I haven't dropped anyone yet. So, uh, I must be doing something okay. And I even had a conversation with a, a dude who was a very old school climber who, um, had kind of this logical fallacy that we see a fair amount and it's like a standard, you know, like a normal ATC without the, the guide mode ring. Yeah. So you clip that onto your belay loop the way you do. Sometimes people have the idea to, in order to belay from above, they'll just clip it onto the anchor in that same setup. Which, oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, I see it in your face right now. It's like yeah. I'm not can't do that. any friction. Yeah. yeah. It's like, it's, it just doesn't work. And you see it every now and again. And sometimes um, I've heard it from one dude who was like, oh yeah, I left my other ATC on my other rack. I'm just using this today. I don't normally do it. And I'm like, well, that, I guess that makes me feel a little bit better, but you're still doing it like that. But, um, and then I've also heard it from people that are like, oh yeah, you know, I always do it like this. I haven't heard from one guy that he said he caught a fall. Like he's like, oh, I've caught falls like this before. And I'm like, well, that's the absolute epitome of getting lucky right there. Cause mm -hmm. like if he must've had the rope super tight on a slab or something like that, in order to make that work. Maybe the rope was running over rock, adding friction. 
Like, I'm still trying to think in my head how he was actually able to catch someone that wasn't like a four-year-old girl with that belay. And, yeah, that's ridiculous. But that was I mean, his, like, justification, right? Like, he, he was like, he actually came up and asked me about, like, this whole guide mode thing that he's been hearing about, even though it's, like, 20 years old. But um, we were talking about it, and he's like, yeah, I've caught falls like this. And I'm like, great. <laughs> like, I think a lot of that confirmation stuff, like, is you are essentially one data point, you know? And so if you can say, like, this has worked for me before, that's one data point. And then we can look at the people that say this hasn't worked for me, and that would be another data point. And you can add up the data points. And I can guarantee you there's more data points where that has not worked for someone versus this working for you. So like, it's hard to tell people that they are the exception when it comes to something like that. And, uh, and those can be be really hard, like, especially the old guard, like, Oh, I've been doing this for 20 years, but I like the saying where it's like, well, 20 years of doing something wrong doesn't make it right. Exactly. And a lot of times people, I see it in my community and people, people do it in all sectors of life and, professions is the amount of experience they have, they equate simply to the amount of years that they've been doing it. But the question is, have you been doing the old way of doing things for that many years? Have you been doing the wrong way of doing things for that many years? Or in an ideal situation, how I truly account for what is experience is, have you been continually learning the best ways, the best practices every single day? Have you been keeping up to date on what is the best method? That's your experience. Because if you've been doing the same thing for 10 years and you're behind the times, well, I don't think you have 10 years experience. Yeah. You know, and separate exposure to to different things. Like um, up here in uh, Washington, again, like on the volcanoes, you, we get people that have climbed Baker every year, you know, for like, that's just their thing, annual Baker trip. But if you climb it in the same time every year, like June 28th to the 30th every year, uh, then that's going to give you roughly just like what it's like that time every year. And so with the more Alpine routes that change throughout the year or anything involving snow or ice, that'll change, you know, throughout the day even, um, it can only like just doing the same thing at the same time in the same way can only give you so much information. You know, it may be a bit more forgiving in the rock world since rock doesn't change. Um, besides getting a little bit hotter or whatever, but, um, so it can be a bit more of a uh, black and white thing with the rock world, but still, if you do the same thing the same way every time, yeah, if you're doing it wrong, then that could be really bad. And uh, if you are still using the same techniques that 20 years ago were accepted, it may be time to just update that. Like, I've definitely yep. climbed with many uh, old school climbers that have been climbing for quite a while, like as long as I've been alive. And uh, they're still using the same old school techniques and stuff. And I don't really bother to like correct them or anything because we're just climbing for fret as fun, you know? And if it's like, well, it's still going to catch me if I fall, then there's yeah. really nothing it's, I can like 
I can't. It's a weird. It's a weird balance to kind of make that decision, and I struggle with that every time I go out. And I've been getting better at it. I believe you know. I used to. I used to be a little bit more assertive at the crag and a little bit more outspoken about, Hey, you know, looking at your anchor, you know, you should probably change this. Or I'm, I'll tell you what, I'm very, I'm very particular about anchors. I'm very yeah. particular about them and kind of like anything else. Uh, maybe you've had this kind of similar sentiment is you kind of get to the point to where, you know, they're doing their thing. Um, I'm not going to make a spectacle it's not deadly, unsafe, like extremely deadly right now. So I can't go around inserting my opinion into every single situation I see that's just a little bit off. Yeah. Right. Whether it's someone holding holding down the the camming override on a Gregory, mm-hmm. you know, as they're belaying, or you know, someone setting up some sort of anchor that is is not hitting one of the Renee standards or something like that. Oh yeah. Um, it's this weird balance. You want to help people at the same time. You don't want to come off as that guy. Yeah. And it's super easy to come off as that guy. Right. Sometimes like it just happens like there I've gone a little bit in the opposite direction. Whereas I used to not say anything to anyone like to each their own, you do whatever. Uh, If they're getting in the way of like killing me or my team, then I would say something for sure. Like uh, I've had a number of people soloing over me and my team. And I'm like, oh, wow. well, now you're not just like hoping that you don't fall. Now, if you fall, you could actually rip one of us off the wall. Yeah. They'd be like recreating the opening scene to vertical limit. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's like, it's interesting how sometimes people are like, oh, well, I'm only affecting myself. I'm only going to get hurt if I do this wrong. And then they put themselves in a situation where it's like, you're actually going to hurt other people here. And so that's one thing I guess I would urge the public to think about more is like, just make sure if you want to endanger yourself, only endanger yourself. And there have been, I'm actually thinking about a couple of circumstances. There was one time on the West Ridge of Forbidden, just a mountain I guide all the time and a route I guide all the time. And you see all sorts of people up there that where it's their first Alpine rock climb. It's very common for that to be your first alpine rock climb because there's really no snow involved and no ice climbing. It's literally just like a rock climb in the mountains. And so it's great for like if you're a rock climber to go and do that as your first alpine climb. It does have a few things that don't translate that well in the alpine spectrum because if you were to approach a rock climb, right, you would pitch it out all the way up and then you would repel all the way down generally. Sometimes you walk down, other times there's other things. Uh, But in the Alpine world, there's a lot of different systems that are useful to know before trying to climb this thing like a rock route. And um, generally, I don't care, like, if people want to pitch out the entire ridge. It's the reason why you get plenty of 16-hour epics or 20-hour epics on this route is because... um, it's really hard for folks that only know how to rock climb, like only know rock climbing systems to manage that terrain in any sort of timely manner. But I was just like the top, there are two little cat ears and you do a little down climb and a ridge scramble to the true summit. And I was just on the summit with my clients. We went down to the bottom of the notch in between the two, like the down climb and the ridge uh, or the summit. 
and then these guys come up and one down climbs. He does the down climb. He traverses past us to the summit and they're pitching it out. So his buddy is belaying him, but he does the down climb, goes up the ridge to the summit without placing any gear, which is kind of like actually in that circumstance for him may have been the most amount of protection he could give himself with that system. It meant that his partner following the pitch had absolutely no protection for the down climb. So it's like they may feel more protected because they have the rope there, like stringing them together, but they're actually not offering any protection versus doing different Alpine systems. Mm-hmm. But um, that's besides the point. Uh, the big thing I noticed is when this guy was starting to do his down climb, I'm like looking at the whole thing. The guy is off on the summit with some sort of anchor belaying him. And I'm like, well, if that guy falls right now, he's going to rock it down. Like he has no protection, but also I think that rope is going to floss my guys off. And I, I sort of realized that as I was watching it and I'm like, Oh, like this guy could kill all, like we could all die except for the dude on the summit. And so I moved my team away. So that way, if he did fall, he would only kill himself, I guess. And chances are the rope would have been cut anyway. So, right. I mean, I'm pretty After all sure. that friction of that swing. Yeah, like the swing would not have been clean. It would have been rocky and bad. And so the rope probably would have cut. And and so like, I just sort of thought about, I've been thinking about that. Like, yeah, you know, I guess those guys unwittingly endangered just about everyone on this mountain or like on, in this section right here. And that can be, that can be a tough one. That would be like, sort of a good time to interject, right? But mm-hmm. by the time I sort of realized it, I was like, well, there's no point. Like I can't interject yeah. anything now. And it's crazy to think about how many how many little moments like that we come across and especially you come across because I mean you climb so much more than the average uh, climber out there. How many of those brushes you have with these extreme dangers, especially imposed by other people every single week. Yeah, it's like, and you know, some some days are better than others. <laughs> uh, I would hope so. It kind of depends on the situation. Um, I, I had another example in my mind for a second. I'm trying to remember it now. Uh, one that I thought fit the scenario really well. Um, oh, I'm totally blanking on it. Like that forbidden one was pretty good. Uh, There's some moments that kind of just stick with you, you know, in terms of like maximum fear. Yeah. And then this one, this other example, it didn't affect me at all per se, because I was above them when it was happening, but it was when me and my girlfriend climbed the tooth. It's just kind of a, well-known small alpine climb in Washington in Snoqualmie Pass. And it's just like a day climb, you know, it's like four pitches. It's like five, four, I think, or something. Beautiful. Super easy. Yeah. Like don't bother, leave your climbing shoes at home, you know, just do it in a pro shoes. And um, we were at the top. And when we were coming down, there's like uh, basically like two rappels along with like, two move belays, like rappel to the ledge, scramble, rappel to the ledge, and then scramble, and then you're good. And um, so it's like kind of just two rappels, you know? It's like 
no need to really save a lot of time. Just like set up the repel, extend your repel, you know, add a third hand and go down. These repels aren't long. This is the Alpine, right? So they're only like maybe like 50 feet or something max. And uh, these two people decided to simul repel. And I'm like, and like everyone sort of heard, you know, the whole this and that when it comes to simul repelling. And it's also kind of like a, well, you know, you're not really gaining anything from speed, which I also want to throw that out there. Like simul repelling is basically not any faster than just repelling normally. Like um, I've had plenty of friends uh, that have tested this theory out on a route doing the exact same thing, like repelling like five pitches and either simul repelling or just doing a regular one at a time repel. And they beat the simul repel beat the regular repel out by like 20 seconds. So it was like, that's great information for people yeah. out there. I've never simul repelled, but I have heard the kind of some of those statistics out there and uh, it's been warned against, but that's yeah. kind of cool that there's been an actual side-by-side -side test. Yeah. And I think like the best part of simul repelling is how you get to have a casual conversation with your buddy going down. So it's like, I'll simul repel if I'm just with my friend and we're just like, we want to talk on the way down. Um, mm -hmm. And there are other times where it, it could be, I mean, there are times where you could make the argument for it, particularly in a team of three with the speed repel technique, even though that's not true simul repelling. But mm -hmm. as a team of two, simul repelling, uh, and so these folks were doing that exact thing, going back to the story. One person was using a Grigory, which is a great device for it. The other person was using an ATC, which is also okay, except for they had no third hand and they weren't extended or anything, just an ATC. And that also got me thinking, you know, like, so you guys are choosing the most dangerous way to descend off this mountain and you're not even doing full backups. And so the person with the Grigri is like the person with the ATC is putting both their life and the Grigri person in danger. You know, it's the Alpine. There are tons of loose rocks everywhere. Who's to say you're not going to get hit by a rock and knocked out when you're holding an ATC without any sort of backup. And that person's going to rock it down. And then the Grigri person's going to go down. So that's right there is like immediate, like, well, if I'm going to simul repel with someone, they should at least have a third hand, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that's like already kind of flawed logic right there. Another thing is they were doing it in the Alpine. And uh, with Alpine anchors, when you're just slung around a tree, simul repelling puts a lot more force on that anchor. You know, if you are if you weigh like 200 pounds and you do a normal repel, that's 200 pounds on your anchor. If you have two people that weigh 200 pounds, and they simul repel, that's 400 pounds on your anchor. And so it's just like decreasing their margins ever closer. Mm -hmm. And if it's like two bolts with chains, it's like, who really cares? But when you're moving into the Alpine with these like tree anchors and stuff like that, it's, uh, it's just like, there's a lot of kind of like risk that they're adding into the system here for n virtually no reward. They're going to like simul repel down 50 feet and then they have to coil up the rope and walk, simul repel again. This isn't like a climb at Potrero Chico where you have to do like 20 repels or anything. Mm -hmm. But So it's like 
that it affected it didn't affect me at all i was just sitting there watching the whole thing go down and i actually didn't mention to them like for the sake of like you know like hey just do normal repelling and it's like they don't know who i am it's right. funny how like you know if you get like a famous climber up there then everyone's all willing to do exactly what they do but, right you should have screamed from from the bottom hey i'm ryan tilly <laughs> Oh, Ryan Tilly's telling us to do it. Yeah, it's funny because I actually got recognized on that climb. (laughs) Someone asked me like the whole thing. But uh, yeah, I mean, like people see the pro climbers like Alex Honnold and Cedar Wright. Everything they do, they like simul repel and they're doing like linking all these pitches and stuff. And like that, that gives that idea a lot more clout than if you get someone else, you know, like, like a company like the company doesn't recommend to do it but you get like a pro climber doing it and all of a sudden everyone thinks it's okay like blending with micro tractions was kind of like a funny one where like this kid was like oh all the pro climbers do this so it's good and we're like no you just buy a blade device you know they're cheaper and they actually like do the job and then just recently petzl like you know approved their micro traction for top belaying so now that argument doesn't hold as much water, but it's still like a, in general, just like think twice before you do something that you see the pros doing. That's for sure. Yep. So there's a, there's a uh, question that I wanted to get your opinion on. Um, and it came up, we were having a conversation, me, me and some of my, um, my climbing community over here, we were just chatting about, so my personal favorite type of climbing I love me some slab run out. Yeah. Love it. I just love it. I'll, t- <laughs> I'll tell you, I, I love it. I think, uh, well, I'll tell you, you know, maybe I'll tell you my thoughts a little bit later, but I want to get your unbiased thoughts on, there's a lot of controversy out there about sport routes, for example, that are um, bolted in kind of a run out manner. And there's an argument out there that all these classic sport routes around the world, around the U.S. especially, they should all be retro bolted and just just perfectly bolted every five feet or so for maximum safety. What what are your thoughts on that on that argument of either increasing the safety or maintaining the character and the the storied past of how that bolt or how that route went up and keeping it how it is. <laughs> this one's always a fun one. Um, and like, it's also something I haven't thought about too much in my life. It's, it's kind of an interesting situation because like, I guess you can approach it like a lot of trad routes that are really easy tend to be less safe than the hard trad routes, right? So if you climb like a 5.4, cat in the hat, like cat in the hat at Red Rock, um, there's a lot of ledges and stuff, you know, and some routes that are even more than that. Like, so if you climb up, you run the risk of hitting a ledge or hitting something on the way down. And uh, a lot of times there can also be like, oh, since it's so easy, then we just like, we'll have it totally run out because like, what are the odds of someone falling on it? Right. 
And that's the uh, Snake Dyke argument, I like to say. Because, like, Snake Dyke's rated, like, 5.7, right? So 5.7 or 5.6. But either way. Um, so that was, like, the big thing is, like, oh, we should add bolts to the 5.7. And the first such in this, which could climb way harder than 5.7, they just didn't add in the bolts probably to save money because they don't have too many bolts, you know? And um, so it's like, I guess you preserve the historical aspect of the route for sure, especially some of these more famous routes. But what, what are, are we really saving character for routes that aren't super famous? You know, who's to say, and I may be a little wishy-washy on this whole answer. It's an, it's an interesting one. I mean, and I'm not sure if you have, you know, um, I don't know. Some people have staunch opinions on it and, and I don't, some people not, but <laughs> I think, yeah, I'm like a bit more hippie, I guess, teach his own. And like, you know, I'm not going to be, I'm not ever going to be the guy out there chopping bolts. That's for sure. And, um, you know, there is a bit of a difference, I think in terms of safety, where if you have a route that is rated five, eight, and it has five bolts protecting, uh, you know, 100 feet of climbing. So that's one bolt every 20 feet or so. And then if you have spots for gear in between there, that's a pretty well-protected climb, right? You can get mm -hmm. like a piece of protection every 10 feet or so. That's pretty decent. Mm -hmm. yeah? And um, maybe you even have more options than that. And so are the bolts, the bolts are pretty much there just to protect the areas where you can't get gear. And so this is kind of like, in my mind, it's like the Squamish model. Cause that's what I've seen in Squamish a lot is like, if there's no place for gear, they'll put a bolt. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of like blends the two together, but it's all in the same vein of being like a decently protected route. And then you can have the more like, I guess we'll call it the American model where it's like a lot of, these run out sections because they're easy. Um, and it's like, all oh, if you are worried about falling on five, five, then don't climb the route. But it's kind of like the old school mentality. Whereas the newer one is kind of like, or at least my mentality is it's going to happen one of these days. <laughs> and it has happened on a lot of these routes, like a really famous route on the East coast is called sliding board. That's on, um, it's in New Hampshire on one of the, I, for, I always forget the name of the crag, but it has like the mental crux pitch. That's what they call it. And it's rated 5.5 five, and you climb up a little ways, you clip one bolt and then you climb like 30 feet on 5.5 five slab. It's not hard, but you climb- But it's still 40 feet of run out. Yeah. And so it's not going to be pretty if you fall. And uh, you get up to like this place where you stick a tri-cam in. I had to do it blind because I kind of like screwed up a bit. But I was kind of like climbing it like, yeah, it's not hard, but I still wouldn't want to fall here. And I'm like, there's so many people that are going to hop on it where maybe that's closer to their limit, you know? And so like, I wouldn't care if they added another bolt or two. And uh, same thing for like, well, actually, let me go to the other end of that argument. Like maybe a route is better when it's not doesn't have so many bolts on it, you know, 
maybe by adding a lot of bolts, it'll give the route a more myth of safety versus actually being safe. And then because you have people that are right at their limit climbing a grid bolted 5.5 that actually isn't that safe, maybe that'll cause more accidents than not exactly. having those bolts there too. To I like think there's a lot of truth off. to that factor right there. Yeah, so it's there's a lot to consider. And um, I've never been one to just kind of like decide what I what the right decision is and then just like staunchly believe that. I think there's kind of a lot of that in the community. Like, oh, well, I know the community doesn't agree with this. I'm out. Like, you know, just sort of like following in with it. And, um, and I guess maybe it's just a case-by-case basis, just like anything else in climbing. Like, if it depends on how accessible you want it to be. It depends on your personal feelings with aesthetics, with your ethics. And um, I don't know. I guess the system we have right now isn't bad. The whole like, hey, if you want to add a bolt, just contact the first ascensionists and mm-hmm. um, see what they feel like. I mean, a lot of times when they ask them, the first ascensionist is like surprised that more bolts hasn't been added yet because they were like, oh, yeah, you know, like I ran out of bolts and I've been... <laughs> Like I didn't have enough money to buy 30 years ago. So yeah, I was expecting to like people would just add more bolts and make it better. And yeah, um, it's, it's kind of one of those interesting, just, I mean, it really is just a thought experiment because at the end of the day, you know, um, we don't, you know, we're not the deciding body. Yeah, what am I going to change? I'm not going to yeah, change yeah. anything. But, but I just always like to, you know, I thought it was a, um, it sparked some interesting controversy between, um, some different people and everything, just thinking about it in general. And I think you're right. I think there's pros and cons for both and we can play devil's advocate on both sides, whether or not we want to maximize the safety aspect, but then we run or the number of bolts seemingly more safety, but then people are kind of sauntering up a little bit more willy nilly because they have all these bolts. So are they climbing better or do people like myself do we climb better in run out situations because of a little bit of that fear factor and intimidation? Yeah. And does that make us psychologically better climbers? And does it demand precision movement because we don't have those little safety barriers in place? So, um, so for your, um, just kind of in closing here, what is, what is next for you, Ryan Tilly, um, are you in terms of your, your, uh, guiding with your company, uh, which is correct me if I'm wrong, Northwest Alpine guides. Yep. Northwest Alpine guides, your YouTube channel, where are you going next in your excursions and your professional pursuits? Well, I was going to wait to announce this until later on around September this year, but I mean, just as long as, and who knows when this podcast is going to be published anyway. <laughs> so um, like, yeah, like later today or something. Uh, yeah. Today, tomorrow. So um, the plan in my life is I got a big change coming up where um, I'm actually going to be moving down to California in uh, October ish time. Like uh, we got like, until November 1st, we will be down there November 1st, but sometime in October, we're going to start working our way down there. And so 
that's kind of the big thing for me. Um, Washington has been great. I've lived here my whole life. Uh, I just want a bit of a change and I want to go back to my roots and do more rock climbing now than alpine climbing. So awesome. I'm going, I can definitely get behind that, Ryan. Yeah, I know. Right. Like, like there's a lot of walking in Washington. And so, um, I just kind of want to, yeah, just go. I just want to experience a new place and learn new mountains and everything. So, um, now are you going to, are you continuing your profession as a guide at a new location over there? Yeah. Completely. Okay. Yeah. I'm just heading over there. I bought a domain to actually have a website. Uh, it's not up and running yet, but, uh, I'm working on it. So I'll have a website that kind of like I can market myself with, and, um, you can still like hire me to guide, but I'm probably going to bring you through a company. And so I'm going to, my main company down there will actually be called international Alpine guides. I didn't mean to have like same names in there, but it just sort of worked out that way. Um, and so I'm going to be like sort of based out of the Sierra in Truckee, California. And, um, Doing. I'm a little bit, um, I'm a little bit ignorant with the regions in Cali. Is that Northern central Southern, you know, where Lake Tahoe is ish. Yeah. Right. It's Northern Lake Tahoe. It's actually like same line of latitude as Reno, Nevada. Okay. So half an hour from there. And so I'll be based out of that. I'm going to be doing ski guiding, ice guide, a little bit of ice guiding, I guess, uh, rock Alpine, you know, all of it. And, um, it'll be year round position there. So it's a good next step for me. And, um, I'm still planning to, you know, have my YouTube channel. That's not really going anywhere. Um, I good. will have more time to actually invest in the videos soon. <laughs> I promise once AMGA stops stealing all my money, you know, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I spent about $8,000 on professional development this year for my, really good yeah. for you. It was my pro two and I'm taking my Alpine exam in September. So both of those Good for you. That's awesome. around $8,000. So it's, uh, I'll have more time or, uh, more time and more money, hopefully to invest into stuff like YouTube. And I've had like some other ideas for a website design, maybe, um, on my mind for the past few years about like, working on sort of a long-term wear of equipment as like outdoor gear lab, only focusing on long-term wear. And so I may get started with that at some point um, and just need more time. And uh, moving down to California is how I'm going to get more time to work on this sort of stuff. So I think you're going to be very, I used to live in California myself and I think you're going to be very pleased with the consistency of weather and yeah, that's what it rained out. I mean, I've never lived in Washington. I was only, I was only in, in California. I was living there for the military, but it's like every day was the same. Yeah. Every day was just consistent, not too hot, not too cold, no rain. My buddy, Dustin, he's been working up here and um, this is his second year working up in Washington, but he lives in California and like, he has kept on saying stuff like we did this trip together on Vesper peak and the flies were pretty bad. And he's mm. like, Oh man, I, these flies, they suck. So, like they're no flies in California. 
And then he was also complaining about the weather up here. And he's like, oh, it doesn't rain in California. He just keeps talking about California like that. And like, and yeah. uh, like the one thing he said is the days are so long up here because I guess you're far enough north that you notice the days being longer than down in Truckee area, which is interesting. But it's funny how he just comes up here and complains about Washington. But <laughs> that's fine. I love him for it anyway. <laughs> Out of curiosity, have you have you climbed over here in Colorado? Uh, a little bit. I would love to climb more, but I've done stuff like, you know, the first and the second flat iron and oh. a few routes in Rocky Mountain, like some routes in Eldo, just a small amount. I really want to come back and do like some, you know, really classic ones. Excellent. Uh, Man, uh, oh, flat irons. Talk about some classic slab. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, maybe I'll come over to Colorado and you can show me around and we can like climb some weird slab or something <laughs> anytime anytime <laughs> that's awesome all right uh so if people want to reach out to you um so number one your youtube channel um can you go with your youtube channel for the uh, people listening yeah it's just my name ryan tilly t-i-l-l-e-y if you type in certain words into youtube like rock rescue drill like i pop up right there <laughs> and then um and then just, yeah, my name, but that's my channel right now. Um, it's, uh, it's not, I guess the name's not going to change. I, I wanted to change it for a little bit, but now it's like the, the branding is too. Yeah. I mean, you have that. branded yourself. People know it. I'm telling you people over here, you mentioned Ryan Tilly people know. Yeah. People that's kind of crazy. I just didn't think that people really knew me. I mean, I got like some people would like say, Hey, are you this guy or whatever, you know, like the voice or the beard or something. But, um, <laughs> I never really thought I'd be like a crag name that people yep. would like spout out or something like that. You've, you've reached the masses. Woo. <laughs> yeah. Um, so can people, I'm not a YouTube aficionado. Can people contact you via YouTube? There is like a weird way to do it. Like, um, if you go to a page and then it'll be like, write a message or something. There's also the comments, which sometimes I get comments like that. Uh, in what would the, you say the best way for people to contact you if they wanted to set up guiding with you, whether it's in the super near future or when you make the transition over to California or just in general? It'll be like the best way right now is Instagram. And I have my Instagram handle in the, uh, the description box of all my videos. And so that's like, it's right there. It's R T I L. No, wait. R yeah. R T I L L S O N underscore. It's an old, uh, climbing nickname actually from my team kid days. Oh, awesome. <laughs> but, um, so that's like, that's kind of the best way to get in contact with me until my website gets up and running, which I don't know. I guess that'll be a fall thing too. Probably. It's like, I've been, um, working a bit hard lately, so it's kind of hard to do anything right now. And so yeah, I mean, uh, you're literally just on, just on week long expeditions. And apparently. Yeah. If I, hopefully that'll kind of dim down a bit, you know, <laughs> get a bit more time, but, um, yeah. So once my website gets up and running, then that's going to become, I'm going to go in to the description of all my videos. Again, just put website right here and that'll be a great way to contact me. But I mean, through Instagram is also, it works out pretty well. So those are really the best ways to get in touch. 
Perfect. Well, Ryan, again, I really appreciate you coming on today. You've been a wealth of knowledge and you continue to be a wealth of knowledge through your videos and all your media that you put out. So um, I'm kind of I'm kind of speaking for the Colorado climbing community. Keep it going. We love it. Well, uh, thanks, Jared. That's it's great to hear. It's always nice to hear people liking my stuff. <laughs> That's for sure. And uh, thanks for having me. This is kind of cool. I mean, my first podcast, so it's like um, pretty pretty cool to have. And uh, I guess when I get my website up and going, I'll put a little link to uh, help promote your uh, podcast as well. Sounds good. Sounds good. All right. Well, everyone, thanks for thanks for. Uh, Logging on to the uh, the Denver Crooks Climbing Podcast. This has been Ryan Tilly. And again, uh, if you guys have questions, please reach out to Ryan. Wealth of knowledge. Check out his videos. It's, it's all amazing stuff. So I can't brag enough about him. But uh, yeah, this has been the Denver Crooks signing out. All right. I hope everyone enjoyed the episode. And... Ryan, thank you for joining us today here on the Denver Crux remotely. Uh, it's been a real honor. Like I said, you are truly an inspiration. You're just passing on knowledge, and I don't think there is a more important task that we can do as humans than that. So thank you again very much. And it is kind of mid-climbing season here in Colorado. There's some hot days, some pretty temperate days and the climbing's just been great all around so I'm definitely getting out to some new locations myself I get a little bit stuck in my ways sometimes when I find certain crags or regions that I just absolutely love it's hard for me to get away from those but I'm trying to spread my wings a little bit this year a little bit more and find some new places and get to know them as well as a side note I was out climbing last week at an undisclosed location and I was climbing, just finished up, got down, was taking off my rope and the climber next to me was rappelling and he was about a little bit short on the rope, I think. I think he was trying to make it to the ground on maybe one wrap instead of two and he was he was about he was about 20 or 30 feet short and he slid right off the ends of the rappel right off the ends which historically is one of the most common errors to make slid off the ends did not have any knots tied at the end of, the, of his rappel rope so he fell a good amount. I heard the heard the crash to the ground and he hit the ground and he continued to fall and tumble all the way down the approach for about another 50 feet and smacked into a tree at the very end. Luckily, he did survive. Went over to check him out. He didn't have any major injuries or anything broken that was apparent at that time but then again when that adrenaline gets flowing sometimes you can't really tell but just kind of goes to show that these incidents can prove to be catastrophic and sometimes people get really lucky but at the end of the day 
we got to make sure that they're not happening in the first place. Because that was definitely a life and death situation, flip of the coin, and he just so happened to come out okay. But sometimes it's a good reminder. I'm sure he's going to have a nice bowl of some cinnamon toast crunch the next morning. And I'm sure that was the best bowl of CT crunch he has ever had. I'm sure the, I'm sure that day was just a nice, nice little reminder of how sweet life is after you've had a near brush with death. So anyway, I'm rambling a little bit, but just make sure you check your knots, especially when we're repelling, get those knots in at the end of it. We got to make sure we're careful out there. All right. So hope to see everyone out there climbing. Like I said, beautiful weather in Colorado. All right. If you're not climbing, get out there. Time to start doing it. Time to start doing it. All right. Indoor season can wait. All right. So this has been Jared Hazel with the Denver Crux podcast, and I'll see you all on the next.